0: The following is provided by Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and available at itunes.covenant.edu. This morning I talked a little bit about how our kingdom conscience is formed in the tension between the first and second commandments, first and second great commandments, loving God with all your heart, mind, and soul in the middle of a hostile world. But then the second commandment is like it loving your neighbor as yourself. There's an inherent tension, jealousy for God. And his holiness can seem to be opposed to loving our neighbor, particularly when our neighbor doesn't know God. But those two come together in a harmony. I want to say there's another thing about kingdom conscience, and that is understanding how the message is delivered and how it comes to us to form that conscience. Now, there's an interesting word, which a few of you might know, elentics, and it's uh, an important word when it comes to proclamation. And then there's another one, evangelism. Now, elentics is essentially refutation. This is where you decimate the opposition, okay? And this is where uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 that though we live in the world, we don't wage wars. The world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So here the gospel comes like your battering ram. Think of Lord of the Rings and... And taking down Gondor and those monstrous rams. And that's how the the gospel comes to Jericho. Comes to the city today. It comes like a battering ram. But then there's this other word, evangelism. And here we hear the spirit and the bride say, come. We have the invitation of the gospel. We have the reconciled... The offer of reconciliation and the, the hope of God is offered in Jesus Christ. And why can that other word, which seems so different in focus, intent, emotion, and character, also be a part of the proclamation? Because the battering ram of judgment fell upon Jesus Christ. The wall of his temple body was destroyed. I destroyed this temple in three days and will raise it up. Because that battering ram moved into him on our behalf... Now there's this other message, evangelism. But the gospel always comes in this form between elanctics and evangelism and a kingdom conscience is formed as those things come, as the, as the gospel judges us and heals us at the same time. Well, we come to um, this idea of walls and uh, when we talk about the battering rams and the gospel and I want to talk about walls tonight and how walls are a reality of uh, ancient cities, obviously, All the ancient cities that uh, survived any length of time had some pretty substantial walls. And you didn't have those walls. You were a very short-lived city. Uh, And uh, yeah, but I want to talk about how there are walls today too. And there are walls that lock people out. And there are also walls that lock people in. I want to give you an example. A friend of mine is a missionary on the Hobima First Nations Reserve. We call that our uh, native Canadians, our Indians, we call them First Nations. And uh, this uh, reserve is, is a massive, many square miles and large reserve uh, dedicated and given freely to the, to the First Nations people there. Now, what's kept out by the fences and the boundaries around them is the intrusion of a white and Anglo culture, the the governmental intrusions. They have their own government, their own police force, their own uh, laws, essentially, within those reservations. So they can perpetuate their own culture. But those walls that lock out those influences are also walls that lock in other things. Violence, abuse, this pastor buried two people from one family, two children from one family that were shot in violent crime just in the last month. Sexual abuse, incest, despair, suicide on a scale many times the national average. So the walls that lock out bad influences also serve to lock in that kind of culture. It's also a culture of virulent paganism. The spirituality is very serious. We make little funny totem poles and joke about it. But I was just talking to a brother here who's been in Haiti, and I said, he says, they practice voodoo there a lot. I says, is it just superstition, or is it really attached to the occult? And he says, it's a spiritual reality. They're dealing with the the opposition in a very direct and immediate way in missions there. It's the same with First Nations. But at any rate... We don't understand the modern city. We don't understand our mission. We don't understand the character of the gospel until we understand that there are walls, and the gospel comes in this two-fold proclamation, both the Alentics of the battering ram and the evangelism, and that's actually what happens in, Jeremiah, in, in Joshua 2. The tearing down the kingdom of God comes to tear down the walls that lock in people in oppression victimization and violence and to clear away that rubble to bring the captive out the victim god never engages in war and never judges except for to release the captive he only crushes the hand of the oppressor to release the one that the oppressor has hold of. This is happening. So you see this battering ram come against it. And Rahab is not a footnote in Joshua. Read chapter 6. Half of the chapter is about Rahab. The purpose of Joshua is not the destruction of Joshua, it is not the destruction of Jericho. It is the redemption of Rahab. And the idea in one single passage there, it says, and all of the spoils of the city were put into the treasury of the Lord, and Rahab and her family were brought out and set free and are a part of Israel till this day. It's all in one small section there because she is the treasure. She's the redemptive spoils of that battle. Her and her whole family and all that belonged to her represented a chief purpose of god's judgment of jericho to set free tear down those walls that lock in and set people free let's try to read this passage see if i can't convince you of this and see if we can't be thinking about the modern city in the same way joshua son of nun secretly sent two spies from Shittim. go over to the land he said especially jericho So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I do not know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. As soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, "I I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. For you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Please now swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother, my brother and sisters and all who belong to them and you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we'll treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. The house she lived in was part of the city wall. Now she said to them, go to the hills and the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourself there three days until they return and then go on your way. The men said to her, this oath you've made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you've tied the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down and unless you brought your father and mother your brothers and all your family into your house if anyone goes outside your house into the street their blood will be on their own head will not be responsible anyone who is in this house with you his blood will be on his head if a hand is laid on him but if you tell what we're doing we will be released from the oath you've made us swear agreed she replied let it be as you say she sent them away and departed she tied the scarlet cord in the window walls that lock out are also walls that lock in here's jericho a mighty walled city the gateway to canaan the port city the first stronghold that israel is going to come to and they are a walled city and they lock out everything why they lock out for safety for military safety, for protection. They lock out so they can protect the commerce, the industry, the religion, the uh, social, ethnic, economic diversity of that community. They lock out so they can have some kind of civilization and culture. But as we know, that city also locks out the kingdom of God. What's locked into that city? Well, we know that sexual exploitation is locked into that city. Because Jericho is a city that buys and sells people. It even offers children up for sacrifice on their altars. It is a city where barter in the image of God takes place as a regular part of its existence. It is a city in which sexual exploitation is institutionalized, industrialized, and constitutive to that city. Her house is built into the wall of that city. I don't think that's an incidental footnote. Her life and her way is part of it. They had institutionalized sexual exploitation in their entire religious cult. It was part of how they did things. They institutionalized sexual exploitation in the bartering and trading of women and children for sexual favors. They commercialized and industrialized it. It was constituted of that city just like it was built into the bricks of the wall. It was built into that city that they would treat people that way. The modern city is not different. Sexual exploitation is institutionalized. It is practiced frequently in our cities. Internationally, perhaps not as much in our country, that people are forced into the sex trade. Watch a documentary like Born into Brothels. It's a transgenerational reality where the mothers and their children are brought into the trade and then their children for many generations. If someone becomes a widow, if you were to see the movie Water, you'd see that the only place for a widow to go, a poor widow to go in that country is to go into prostitution in the country that that movie speaks of, is to be sold into that. Because this becomes institutionalized in their culture. It's also commercialized in our world today. The second largest industry in the world, next to the drug trade, is trafficking of women and children. Each year, two million women and children are trafficked across the borders of this world. Now, if you want to know what that means commercially, in Vancouver, one pimp with six girls, is able to earn $2,000 to $3,000 a day. So some thug who is, knows how to be violent and knows how to work their way, some hell's angel, or whoever does it, can make 650 to 100 million tax-free dollars every year. That's how profitable this industry of sexual exploitation is we see that it's institutionalized, it's commercialized, and it's a part of what the city is all about. If we look at the fact of um, how terrible a reality it is, it should amaze us that Vancouver at this point probably will be the first place in North America that forms a red-light district. We are crying out to institutionalize sexual exploitation, the selling of human souls, the trafficking of bodies. We have already made it a legal status to immigrate people across our country to come in as the status of sex trade worker or stripper. In other words, if you want to get into this country, one of the ways to fast track it is either to be a minister or a sex trade worker. You will be permitted to come into Canada. The ancient city and the modern city are not that much different. Vancouver has its walls. If you look across the False Creek to downtown Vancouver, you'll see about 3 miles, 5 kilometers where I come from, of wall to wall high-rise, beautiful, gorgeous 500,000 to 3 million dollar condominiums. We call that the Jericho Wall. Now that wall and that downtown permits a certain lifestyle, an economic diversity, a social diversity, an ethnic diversity, services, trade, all kinds of things can happen. Developments of science, of education, of culture, of the arts, all of these wonderful things happen because there's boundaries, there's protection, there's a place for people to live. There's a population base and a safe place that the government provides and protects. But behind that wall, is one of the most dissolute lifestyle cultures of this planet. Vancouver is the preferred site of the America Pedophilia Association for Sex Tourism in North America. The prosecution rate in a recent year was 700 prosecutions in the area of prostitution. 690 were the women or children. Only 10 Johns were prosecuted in one whole year. 65 women have been murdered in Vancouver in the last 12 years. There's an entire industry forming in the subculture of Christianity for taking in young boys who are raped in the gay community. The average age of entering the sex trade in Vancouver is 14 years old. Girls and boys as young, as young as 12 years line up at 4.30 in the morning in what's called the Kitty stroll in East Vancouver to do tricks for 25 to $50 for businessmen on their way for a latte and heading off to business. Virtual immunity guaranteed for that kind of lifestyle. You see, the walls that lock out are also walls that lock in in our civilization, in our culture, in our cities. This is also true of the church. The church is the new Jerusalem. The church is the city of God. The church is the city within the city. The church is supposed to be the renewal of the city. God places the church in the city to be city-soluble, to renew the city, to provide that ministry of deliverance, to provide that opportunity of people to escape. The churches in the New Jerusalem is a massive, beautiful, incredible structure, massive high walls, 100 cubit thick walls, a place of safety and protection. But 12 gates which surround the city permitting what? People to come in to be protected and people to leave to be sent for the mission. But the average church today is more like a medieval castle that locks itself up all week week long, has a protective motor around it, lets the drawbridge drop down once a week and let people in for 90 minutes and then slams it back up. Nothing but windows, no gates, no doors, no walls. Because what we've done in the city is we've locked, what we've done in the church often is lock out the need, the brokenness, and the pain of the city around us. We've locked in a self-absorption and a preservation of our own culture and our own distinctives. There's a movie which won uh, the Cannes Film Festival a few years ago, Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Did anybody here see it? So uh, Michael Boule, I believe his name is, is the fellow who was um, executive director for l magazine in paris uh, left his family to live this you know incredible lifestyle of affluence drives his uh, jag everywhere and all of a sudden he's stricken with this stroke and it's a massive stroke and he's utterly paralyzed and he finds himself in a hospital bed unable to move anything and in a short period of time, all he can do is wink one eye. That's his total connection to the outside world. He has what's called locked-in syndrome. And the, butter, the diving bell image is him sinking down into this murky water with this you know, huge metal helmet on, completely locked into himself with no contact to the external world, except this one eye. And the punchline of the story is eventually, as he reveals it, as he's written the book about it before he died, was that he'd always been locked in. He'd always been self-absorbed. He'd never been connected to the world around him. And I think he was making a statement about the modern world we live in. Absorbed with itself, its commercial enterprise, its technological innovations, utterly locked out from one another. But at any rate, he can wink through this one eye and what happens is he learns a, a kind of alphabetical shorthand where he can spell out words. And before he dies, he actually writes an entire book called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which is autobiographical about his experiences. And so he can do, you know, a, a sentence every 10 minutes, a page every four hours, a chapter every eight weeks. And he, and he goes through this process of writing this book. But through that one eye, he begins to see the world for the first time. He begins to see the beauty of nature. He can look at a sunset and for the first time in his life, cry it. He can look at his wife and his children and realize how incredibly they loved him and how blind he was to it. He learns to live and experience life through that little tiny port to the world. Well, I watched that movie around the time of looking at this passage, and I want to say I think it made me think of three different things. First of all, Maybe Rahab's little window in the wall of that Jericho is like that eye that's able to see out, that's able to long, that's able to perceive reality that expresses the need of that tyrannical city Jericho to weep, to long, to hope for something else. Maybe that eye is like the church, And those among the church who get involved in the mission of Christ, in tearing down walls, clearing the rubble, finding people, putting their hands, putting their feet, putting their heart into the mission of the gospel, both spoken and acted out, doing justice, preaching mercy in the world, and getting out there. Maybe you who are doing that represent that I that's waking up to the reality, that's beginning to see the real need of the world that's beginning to weep and feel the sorrow around it and lose its self-absorption, get out of itself. Maybe that eye is in every city with every Jericho wall, that as we look at it and see its hostility to the gospel, its degradation, its dissolution, its hopeless affairs, that it too, if we look very carefully, we'll see is struggling to escape from its own isolation, is looking out, longing and hoping to be noticed by someone or something or cared for by someone or something and wondering if it's utterly alone without hope and without God in the world. What are the spies then? The spies are God's answer. They are the kingdom answer to the longing of Rahab. And I'm going to express that now and explain how that happens. And actually, we too are simply spies and emissaries sent into our cities to announce the kingdom of God, to announce that the walls are coming down. That the time is up, the tide is turning, Jesus Christ is arriving, his coming is, it says in Zephaniah, the day of the Lord is near and coming quickly. It's not that the gun, the bullet is in the chamber, it's not that that the hand is on the trigger, it's that the trigger has been fired, the bullet is on its way, the day of the Lord is near and coming quickly, it is time to repent. But we're also emissaries that talk about the kindness of God who permitted his son to take that bullet and to announce another way and another hope. Because what you're going to hear from Rahab here is she held out no hope except for devastation and destruction. Her heart melted within her. Everybody feared. That's the language she used. We saw what you did to those other kings. We knew our days were numbered. We could feel the clock ticking and doom was upon us. And you came into the life of this city and the hope of this city. Please give us a chance. When we heard it, our hearts melted, everyone's courage failed. Because of you, the Lord God, God in heaven above and on earth below. Now, then please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign you will spare the lives of my father and mother, brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, they answered her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we'll treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. I believe... There's two reasons why I believe Rahab was the victim of sexual exploitation and not just a loose woman. I don't know that there... Right now, it's basically 99% of sexually exploited women have been raped or abused. There's none of them that... that uh, 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 or it would be rare and rare indeed that it's a chosen profession to make a living. Although I'd say in Rahab's case, either she could have been part of a ritual prostitution... She could have been part of a transgenerational reality. Or it could have been the only way to make a living for her family. You don't think that's true? Oh, not in America it's not true. But there are many places in this world where if you don't want to starve to death, that is the only way out. And I wonder, why do I say that? Look at her her solicitous concern my father, my brother, my mothers, my everything, all the everything, all my family, extended world, they mean everything to her. This doesn't sound like some calloused, hardened street worker to me. She's a full-orbed human being of immense character and, and enormous faith. This is one of the women of the Bible that provides an excellent example to women everywhere. God, forgive us if we despise her. We set up our own righteousness as some kind of plateau uh, that we can, we can judge her from. So she pours out her heart. Her hearts, our hearts melted. I believe her heart melted for fear of judgment. She heard its coming. She could hear the drums. She heard the trumpets. She heard the early warning signs. She has prophetic awareness. And her heart melts with longing for the kindness of God. That word kindness, that's used three times here, is chesed, the covenant kindness of God. Please show me, not just do a good deed for me, show me that kind of covenant, faithful, loyal, life and death kindness that your God has shown to you. I want in. I want it all. I want to belong to this people. I don't want just to escape this judgment. Show me the kindness of your God, and I will deal kindly with you, faithfully, loyally, in a covenant way. When we see that fear of the coming Lord of judgment is combined for a longing for the the kindness of God, it's called saving faith. Saving faith. By this faith, a Christian believes to be true whatever is revealed in the world for the authority of God himself, trembling with the threatenings and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone. Now, what kind of faith did Rahab have? She had an element of faith we don't talk about much today. Faith is not intellectual assent. Faith is not comprehensive knowledge. Faith is, in its heart, loyalty to the one you believe in. Standing by, staying with, faithful to. She shows her faith in that her first act of faith is to commit treason to the king of Jericho. The king of Jericho comes in and says, where did those guys go? I want to find them. Let's clean out the city. We want to, we're going to find them now. You're with us, right? All right. She says, oh, they took off. Her first act of faith was an act of treason because you can't be loyal to God without committing treason to this world. Tozer said that. He said, anyone who wants to be a friend of God has to learn To quarrel with sin. James said the same thing. Friendship with this world is enmity with God. Paul said something similar. He said, The grace of God has appeared, teaching us to say no to ungodliness in this present age and to live godly, upright lives. Can I ask you a question? when's the last time you committed treason are you in danger of practicing a christian faith that never goes against the grain that won't allow that dividing line to come in that surfs with the current tide in such a way that if you go with the tide, you'll never have to go against its purposes? There's a particular denomination in Canada that we say doesn't have the energy to generate a heresy. Never says no. Never says yes. It's good for rinsing your mouth up if you have an abscess. When was the last time you committed treason? It's really an important question to ask ourselves. There's a lot of way of diverting ourselves from that. Her first act of committing treason, we have to ask ourselves if we're ready to do that too. I want to talk to you last of all of how to sue for peace and win it. Her faith is an amazing example because it illustrates the blood covenant of the gospel and of how we reach into the family of God and become part of that family this is a saving faith this is the full nine yards this is a great example to us please swear to me you will show kindness to my family because i've shown kindness to you that you will save us from death rahab negotiates her salvation she makes a desperate request here and they can't say no she's desperate they can't say no why I think she's got them hanging by a thread the text doesn't say exactly the sequence here in fact the sequence kind of (laughs) confused but I have this picture in my mind is she's just letting them out the river there's the the window there's about 60 feet to go and she says by the way can I have a discussion with you about something here (laughs) she says you know I want to talk about something can we talk and they're saying what do you want to talk about so they're in a somewhat of a vulnerable position but she's negotiating the reputation of God and the people of God. That they're not just a warring people on a battle of conquest, set the table. She says, I want that covenant kindness. I want you to give it to me. And she's urgent, and she won't take no for, for uh, an answer. So God's name and promise is at stake. What do they promise? Our life for your life. Our blood for your blood. We die or you die. This is a life and death agreement. A blood agreement. A covenant agreement going on here. All of the elements are there. She's negotiating the covenant here. She's suing for peace with the king of kings through their people. Some people say, oh, that scarlet cord, that's just so fanciful. If last time i preached this in our church i read the passage from exodus about the painting of the doorposts it's the exact same language if you don't have it on your doorpost and if you leave your home you're going to be slaughtered it's going to be all gone of course the scarlet cord is a picture of jesus christ and his shed blood for us of course it is the church has never thought anything different it's so obvious it's only sophisticated theologians tell us it's too primitive It's obvious that this is the cutting of a covenant. It's a a suing for a relationship with Jesus Christ. In our life today, faith always cuts a covenant with God. Our confession of faith has to always include a desperate and relentless request. It's not, well, if you have time and you can spare a little time, you know, let's wire into God. It says this, if with all your heart you truly seek me, you will find me. if with all your heart if you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling if your soul matters to you, or your eternally mortal soul forever and ever and ever and ever if that matters to you enough come to god do him the honor of having that urgency we are in the age of vanilla christianity What happened to the weeping and the tears and the suing for peace and the cutting of the covenant and the blood and the life for life that's involved in what we're doing here? If it gets any more pedestrian, we'll be watching Wally movie and we'll all get the point of it, which is what I'm going to talk about in the morning. The conveyor belt of Christianity where it's all done for us and we don't have to step out. You see, Jesus can't say no and he won't say no he places his life on the line life for life isn't that what jesus said my life for yours if you know what it costs to become a christian absolutely nothing do you know what price you have to pay absolutely everything If you won't give it, he'll take it because it's all his. You were bought with a price. Now, look what happens to Rahab. I've told you before, this is no footnote. Read in, in Joshua 6, 25. They burned the whole city, everything in it, and the silver and the gold and the articles of brawn and iron they put in the treasury of the Lord. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and with with all that belonged to her because she had hid the men joshua sent as spies and lives among the israelites to this day she is the spoils she represents the fruit of the gospel and she receives full adoption she not only becomes a part of the family and household of god but she's part of the lineage of jesus christ solomon matthew 1 solomon the father of boaz whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, and King David, the father of Jesus Christ, brought into the family and lineage of Jesus Christ because of her relentless covenant faith. Conclusion, your city is filled with Rahab and her family. I don't have to tell you that about Chattanooga. I know this is one of the toughest cities in America, and the needs are greater than everywhere. You don't need to know where to go look and find a place to operate and to serve. You've got it right here in Chattanooga. Your community development program, I'm sure is thinking about those kind of things. The church sends you as a spy and an emissary to declare the coming judgment, the chesed of God, the Olympics, the evangelism. The gospel has power to tear down walls and to rescue and deliver because it's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, his ascended power and glory. The church can be delivered. The last thing is the church can be delivered from its locked-in syndrome. We started a little church in Vancouver. We had clue none what to do. We're now involved in a very wonderful ministry to sexually exploited women. We have uh, uh, in partnership with an organization called Servants Anonymous we have a safe house which has room for 5 women at a time and their children we have a training center which is two floors where women can come and be safe during the day it's staffed about 75% from people from our little church we have a ministry to the homeless showers for the shelterless as i told uh, uh well i won't use that illustration it will take you off base but it's called Shower for the Shelters. where 70 homeless people every Saturday are permitted to come and have a Starbucks coffee, get some clean clothes, get in touch with a dentist or a doctor and have a chance to have a little human dignity once a week. We've been actively involved with that. Housing, Grace Chapels and housing projects. Our little church, little beginnings, but we see that little eye forming and the, our own walls beginning to come down. When the walls of the church come down, it's a signal that the walls of the city are coming down too and rescue will begin to happen. When we clasp our hands in prayer, one person said, it is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder and hardness of this world. We can change. It has to happen with this next generation. Our generation hasn't done a very good job of it. It has to happen with you. You're the ones who have to do the treason. You're the ones who have to break down the walls, and you have to announce the coming kingdom. Amen. We have some time, and uh, I would just encourage you, if you have any questions that you'd like to ask, uh, now is a great time. Just raise your hand. You can ask specific questions about the the work of Grace Church in Vancouver. If there's a question about something in the talk, then you say, what exactly did you mean by that? I didn't quite understand that. Now is a a great opportunity that we don't often have with chapter leaders, which is to just talk with them, and chat. And so I uh, just wanna encourage you now. Can anybody help with you? All right. So uh, you said with grace you uh, this grace church you do you, you believe in like the church actually getting involved and putting in the best interest with a Bible like, like uh, homeless or safe house Well, it's not the case that we own the property. It is a separate organization we work with. Uh, but personally, I'd have no problem whatsoever with owning 50 buildings and using it for that in the city. If somebody's got a problem with that, I don't understand it. Maybe it's an insurance problem, but... That's not the kind of investment I'd worried about. If you're buying property to make money or something like that, you know, investing for the future, some kind of endowment or something, that would be totally different. And we'd have to protect yourself from whatever false motives might come in. But uh, if you can partner with the city and you can work with them, for example, the Mennonites uh, get the city to build a building. Right now I have a friend who works with a 63-unit and an 85-unit recovery center buildings that are single resident accommodations they're met out through the mennonite church in a group called more than a roof the city builds the building pays for the building and allows the mennonite to run it for 50 years so the mennonites maintain and run it for 50 years but the city builds owns the property and owns the building but the mennonites run it so if you can find a partnership like that and uh you know cities are desperate every time we step to the table and are participating with our city uh they're ready for anybody to help in any way they can uh so you might be surprised um how desperate our cities are for people to step up and are willing they are to help now don't compromise if they said you can't preach the gospel but we run a grace chapel out of that one housing project where people are able to come and hear the gospel and we don't no holds barred it's a good arrangement we couldn't afford to buy another building if we wanted to in vancouver so the, the problem is very theoretical at this point <laughs> We can't afford the building we've got. Yes. Well, I would say one thing. What's your name? What's your name? James. I would say uh, a student prayer group to pray for the city and participate with it. Join the prayer ministry of of, uh, New City or some other church and uh, commit yourself to prayer. You can always pray up here. And uh, prayer is the, the early warning system for the advance of the kingdom. And prayer is not nothing. Prayer is the work of the kingdom. It's the preparation. Of the gospel and so uh, that's one thing you can do and you know when you go to school if you were like when I went to school I only went seven months a year that left five months to to make a living and being actively involved in the church during during those other months so you but the fact that you're very concerned about it is good because the church um, seminary and college can have an anesthetizing effect on our uh, on our gospel we get those muscles can atrophy we can gain weight we can lose whatever passion we had it can happen, so it's good to be warned and get start a little revolution around here about the anti uh you know keeping its spiritual fitness or something, yes. Well, in our Shower for the Shelterless program, it's a partner with the city and a uh, partnership with the city, and we don't have uh, uh, real occasion to evangelize in that. We kind of cut our teeth and we put our rookies in there. Uh, you get to the Grace Chapel, which is in the housing project. It's currently not operational because of a bed bug infestation downtown, and uh, they had to close it down for a period of time. We hope to, to renew it. Then you're preaching and teaching and working with people in the buildings. You're befriending them. You're part of their socials. You're actively involved in the community and helping them develop that community under the instruction of wiser leaders who know how to do that and coordinate your your volunteer strategies and your mission strategies. Um, You know, a church uh, has to think of itself as a city with multiple ports of entry. Right now, um, I use this illustration with the group today, I hope, I don't bore them with this, but there was a church, a friend of mine in Issaquah, Washington, uh, had this church up on a hill, and all of a sudden, all these handicapped people started coming, and uh, they had to carry the people up the hill, or drive them as far as they could, then carry them, then eight people carry them up the steps and get them in the church, and there was it was really hard to get in that church if you're a handicapped, if you're anything less than you know a. It had good cardiovascular circulation, you had a chance of getting in that church. Otherwise, you were done for. They probably had more heart attacks per capita than any church in America. Anyway, the the uh, when they built a new church, what do you think the first thing they did was? Well, elevators and handicap access at every level and bring the church down to people's level. And I think that's what we need to think of ourselves, is what are the ports of entry in this church? So we have several. We have completely you know we have an art in the city where we have arts outreaches and christians and non-christians we have shower program which are both what we call mezzanine events they're not really evangelism but they lead to that we have uh, evangelism programs like alpha and like um, uh, investigative bible studies and we have um, an international ministry which is much more overt and evangelistic and then you have social outreach whatever people feel called to do we work in nursing a nursing home we're just starting a ministry to a nursing home so wherever the door opens that also is not only a gate you can go out into the world it's also you now provided a port of entry for people and the more gates of entry uh, will determine the makeup of your church and how it works depending it's interesting that the road somebody once said all roads lead to Rome a friend of mine wrote a PhD on how all roads lead from Rome and the same thing is true of the church, church the, all the roads that lead into the church were first roads that led out from the church and so we have to think of developing different ways of egress into the church and also different ways of sending. A non-sending church won't have ports of entry either. How did you develop those ports in, your, in, your, in your city? And, well, um, you know we God raises up leaders to establish those relationships my daughter was coordinating our mercy ministries at that time and she knew a lady went to all these City Hall ministries found out that they needed help and offered to set up this thing and so the sex the ministry to sexually exploited women Genesis Vancouver was interesting because the lady is a Christian lady in fact my family which is not Christians adopted four children through that agency um, uh, my brothers my brother and my brother my sister and uh, the interesting thing about this is i told dominique i said how long would it take you to start a ministry like this in vancouver if the church wasn't involved she said well about three years i said how long would it take you with the church involved she says i'm not sure i said would you be willing to give us five years she said why would i take two more years and i says because you're a christian and discipling the church is part of what you have to do as a christian so give us a chance train us teach us how to help instruct us and so uh it is Now that we started this ministry in Vancouver, we've also helped start one in New York City with Redeemer. Uh, they're starting one in, in San Diego with uh, City Church, and we've been able to introduce this ministry to at least those two other cities and several others that are interested. As they've seen, this Service Anonymous now has a policy that they go into a new community, they want to work with the church because they've had such a cooperative effect, and they begin to realize the church is the best source of willing and free manpower you could possibly find. So they reduce their capital costs enormously by working with the church. So I don't wanna give the impression that Grace Vancouver is uh, uh, some kind of perfect example of these things. I'm just trying to encourage you that even um, a small church in a urban center that's kind of stumbling along can be used by God to open some doors. And it is a matter of following Christ through those open doors. We start, didn't start with that. We started with helping people butter peanut butter and jelly sandwiches at midnight downtown i can do that i can butter you know and she was the pentecostal and she i finally had to say listen if you're going to keep trying to teach all our volunteers how to speak in tongues we're not going to keep coming (laughs) mother hastings she just said as soon as she got to know someone she says do you speak in tongues All these hookers and everything standing around and all these poor people and desperate needy people and, and she's she couldn't stop telling them out that they have to speak in tongues <laughs> yes Well, we, don't be too impatient. That's one thing. You'll be the church is highly resilient to to breaking down its own walls. And it can be very frustrating and difficult. And we, we have to one thing you have to guard against is cynicism and judgment and criticism of the church. It's not your church to judge. You know, Christ walks among the lampstands. Every time I start thinking of judging the church, I read Revelation 2 and 3 and, remind me, and it reminds me who's the judge of the church. And it definitely isn't me. So he just calls me to be faithful in my station. And, you know, and I, I think a big part of it is developing prayer for this in your circle of friends and in your church. And uh, not being discouraged when after a year you've only got five or six people praying in your church. But uh, then take that group that's praying prayer walking in the need areas of your community and begin to get eyes for the city what I call harvest eyes begin to see the city you know we we are in the age of disembodied spirituality we're in the age not only of because of the internet and web and everything else but Christianity uh, we talked about this yes we want biblical literacy but if it stops at biblical literacy what do you do with your hands your feet your eyes and so on so so by walking that community, you, you you begin to understand it. You begin to establish a presence. When we do community policing in our neighborhood, and there's a group of kids on the corner, and we know they're they're dealing, right? We don't have to do anything. We just keep walking in that direction, and they scatter. You know what I mean? why they don't they like the dark they like they they don't know who you are they don't want to take any chances and we're saying these streets are our streets not yours now when you walk around jericho and you walk around your city you're saying jesus christ is the lord of every square inch of this territory you know the the church planters in in miami used to do this i don't know if they still do but they would take the train the the you know the transit train from the north end of town to the south stop at every major station and stand around and pray and pray for the churches in that neighborhood then they take the train to the next station pray for that neighborhood put yourself in it the problem with the church is it has needs more windows you know it needs to see you can't cry what you don't know and we're anonymous to our community we do a a test in our prayer training and the test is uh, how would your community be able to identify your church and anything about it have you become invisible to the community if you have I guarantee you, the community is invisible to you, too. If, you, if, you're, if you're invisible to the community, it's because the community is invisible to you. Just like if there's no roads in, there's no roads out. Those are the laws. That's how it works. And it's our job to have those eyes and be those eyes. And if you're the only faithful person for a while in your church, don't make yourself into a big martyr and think it's some special thing. You know, that's a little thing for Jesus. We start looking around and say well nobody's doing anything nobody's doing anything for the kingdom i'm doing one little thing i must be special well maybe in christ's eyes we're not still that's i just need to know what he asks of me you know maybe maybe you have three talents and in that day he's going to say i want my investment returned but the people around you have one talent and he's going to be content when they turn in their one talent or they've made two let's say we've got to make more i forgot about that yeah one makes two. Yeah. <laughs> your three makes one. So the biggest, the biggest challenge is to not lose heart, not lose patience, not to begin to judge, not begin to just do it. Do what Jesus wants you to do. And there's always many volunteer organizations in the area you're a part of in community and just say, can I hitch up with you? Christian volunteer organization. And don't make a big deal out of it. Don't go home and castigate and judge your church. I've been a specialist at that, so I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I specialize in self-righteous hypocrisy. You should have a course here. I could teach that course for you. Yes. I think there's a tendency in more conservative one conservatives and churches to um kind of as a backlash to like mega churches not the active thing in program Yeah. I think so. But I think it's changing. I think is there a backlash in the reformed churches, because we're dinky and not big, against the big mega churches to kind of retrench and say we're not going to get, you know, out there and be everything. We we preach the gospel here, we teach the word, and that's what we do. Well, I think there is a, a backlash against that backlash, and I think it's happening, and it should happen, and it will happen. This next generation of young church planters and pastors and missionaries and Christian workers is uh, has a, a strong disposition to action. And uh, fed upness with the sedentary 90 minute Sunday morning church culture. So I, I hope you're part of the backlash. Yes? We don't in that program. Um, my daughter, after four years, said, There's finally two or three people to let me pray for them. It's a very difficult community to work with. There's a lot of mental illness. People are extremely frightened about coming. They sit by themselves. If you get the wrong people coming to the shower program, the people who use crack and the violent people, the other ones stop coming. It really is what we call a mezzanine ministry. It really is like that. And uh, you would be surprised if those 70 homeless people, 20 of them are probably Christians. You know so they're doing their own evangelizing mission even if they're mentally ill doesn't mean they're not Christian and they love the Lord and they'll tell you and they're excited about the gospel and you get to hug them and talk to them about it so uh, you run an alpha program or an international investigative Bible study to do your evangelism or come to church on Sunday morning at both barrels but uh, we don't mind offering up a bread of uh, a, a, a crust of bread in Jesus name if that's all we did I think that would be a serious fault and a weakness you know, when we have an opportunity to preach the gospel, we take it. But uh, it's not that we wouldn't preach the gospel in that context. It's just that we would make sure that it was the right time, the right place, and the right invitation. Do they know? Do they, know? they know we're Christians. Yeah. I, I. Yeah, we're not ashamed of the gospel. It's just i think we have to realize every context has its opportunity and if you your church disperses itself in a city soluble you'll get different venues with greater opportunity we have people come to christ in vancouver and half our membership is by profession of faith so we've seen people come to christ and we see the gospel preached and we're always trying to get it out but it's a tough resilient culture that way yes but we lock our doors all the time and the reason we have to is for psychotic and alcohol and drug using people who will just walk right in and our staff is not able to handle getting them out but that's a different question i think um, you're protecting your staff at that point but if there's a man there then he'll go answer the door he'll go out and talk to them and see if we can help this person we'll tell them about the shower program we'll tell them about housing where, you know but that's you know the 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 they're wise they've made a living getting inside doors so you do have to be careful i have a friend who's coming on staff with us in vancouver and he started a ministry at all angels church on the upper west side in manhattan mark swanson is his name and they have a reputation of being the most compassionate ministry to the city in manhattan and mark started that here's what they did all the churches are locking their doors and letting one or two people in at a time to have a shower why because there's so much psychosis because of crack cocaine use and other things that that the the, the people are scared and there's violence in the food line and everything else here's a cool idea they bought a 60 inch flat screen tv and they put in veggie tales and all the psychotics get to sit and watch veggie tales and they feed and shower everybody else quickly and then when they're done they let all the psychotics go through I'm serious and it worked perfectly and they're able to sustain a two full day shower feeding program by segregating those two communities and helping both of them you know you know uh, uh, people who who you know that's the problem is it's a very um, uh, short journey from using crack to entering into dissociation and psychosis right where you're not not even in control of your own violence. So they have segregated them and they use this TV and I guess it made everybody happy and they're able to run the program. They use about eight volunteers, so you have to be staff heavy too. If you're gonna feed like 60, 70 people, you probably need a dozen workers there to help you and and lots of prayer. It's one thing we need to do is pray more before, during and after these ministries and it's, it's an area that I, you know, somebody said, how do you get these things started? Well, I'll tell you, they stop really easily. Like, it's it's like, I was telling, you know, how many of you have driven a go-kart? You don't know what you're missing. You step on the pedal of a go-kart, it goes. What happens when you take your foot off the pedal? Screeches to a halt, right? Well, that's like ministry in the church. You put the pedal to the metal and you're going. Just turn around and take your foot off for a second. Everything stops. What happened? (laughs) You know? And all of a sudden, you just got to start everything up again. It's like... How many of you saw Cars? yeah okay we're all the church is living on route 66 nobody wants anything to do with us they're all driving down the freeway of life then we see one car come in and <laughs> you know we know we're driving you gonna have shine everything up we're gonna get everything ready the milkshakes are ready everything like that you know and we're in desperate circumstances the church is like that we're off on the fringe and the sides and it's an awful lot of work to mobilize a church you get discouraged the number one discouragement i've seen in young church planters and pastors that i work have the privilege of working with over the years is the enormous discouragement when they find out how resilient the church is to being mobilized, and the inertia that you have to overcome, and how quickly it grinds to a halt, and you feel like every year, boy, we're just starting. this I had such a miraculous leader meeting the other day, where you know I didn't prepare the agenda; it was prepared by somebody else. The deacons all got a plan for the year, and they're all going to do this, and they did this. And I watched that after ten years, the entire leadership structure mobilized itself for this year, and I watched with amazement and joy that it happened. So after 10 years, that's, somebody said, how long does it take to turn a community around? Well, it takes 10 years to get a church plant going like that. So it's, it's, if, you're, if you're timid or you're impatient, you're not good for this job. You have to have, be very resilient and very persevering to do this. If you're, if you're thrilled by immediate results, it's the wrong business for you because there aren't immediate results very often. God will do miracles in the early stages to encourage you, but a lot of it's just hard work. Yes. Well, you know, apologetics and evangelism. Of course, it is that that passage is about the aggressive nature of the gospel and its intellectual power and credibility. So, you know, we we have a well-educated congregation and we try to educate them in apologetics and defending their faith standing up in various contexts in a loving way not with the iron skillet right but different ways of standing up for your faith so you do need a well-educated biblically literate congregation and and uh, young people today are not very adept at defending themselves so uh, we do try to spend a lot of time trying to help people do that uh, tearing down the strongholds that way but I think also you tear down people's defenses by loving them You know, I just had the privilege of seeing a man through his death. And I spent 14 months with him, four months of my sabbatical, and three weeks of my vacation this year with this man. It took till the last couple of weeks for him to allow me to clasp his hands and hold them and curled up in a fetal position, ravaged with cancer, and let me sing hymns to him, read the scriptures to him, to put my arm around him to and i his all of his defense is melted right i'm going to talk about him friday morning and the gospel was allowed in so you can melt people sometimes with a left hook other times it's with you know a little more gentle methodology of atlantics and uangalisto there's people are scared and lonely so in the invitation of the gospel is mighty attractive my daughter's a an enormously effective evangelist she she works with single parents she's a single parent and um, she people just walk up to her and i don't know why they just tell her all her problems and she says have you found a spiritual solution to your problems by any chance i said no well you know what i have can i tell you about my spiritual solution to my problems and she never fails to have an opportunity to tell people but it's after they've created this vulnerability I, I was saying today that the average conversion at Grace Vancouver Church takes between one and two years. And it's, and, and if you don't establish the relational connection, you'll never get to the conversion. It's relation-intensive, relation-intensive. And uh, you've got to be there for people, and it's, uh, we lose a lot of fish because we just can't be there for everybody. It's sad to see them leave when the church isn't equipped to take them in. The proceeding was provided by Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, and available at itunes.covenant.edu.